I would say that the issues in politics are not unique to politics. I think the issues are the same for women who are at the top of business, non-government organisations, civil society, the law, news media, technology, the list goes on. I would say we've got to get away from fixing women, telling women to do things differently and start fixing structures and eradicating stereotypes so that they don't bias or distort decisions. Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. I am really looking forward to today's episode. Um, We are talking to a former world leader who has worked for years to define the role of women in politics. We'll also talk to her about her career journey and what she continues to do to change our world for the better. Clark, when I say I'm looking forward to it, it's actually a bit of an understatement um, because our guest for me is one of the ultimate world leaders, irrespective of gender, someone that I've always looked up to and that I never, ever, 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 ever thought I would actually meet. Um, Why is she so cool? Well, look, not only did she implement some great policies when she was in charge, but this lady has guts and she really stood up against her opposers, many of whom were picking on her simply because she was a woman and calling her terrible things like a man's bitch calling her barren, having notice boards saying, ditch the witch. She did not shy away. She really put them in their place. In the same way, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear her humor and her laugh, which I saw in some of the YouTube videos I watched. But also, she led as a leader, and then she was a woman. And a lot of people are like, oh, she's a woman, and she's a leader. But she made it through the global financial crisis when a bunch of other leaders folded, quite frankly. So I'm super curious to find the human and the leader, and what do we learn on Redefiners about what were her moments of redefining? So I'm really pumped to have this conversation. Clark, don't keep us in suspense. Tell our listeners who our guest is today. Our guest today is Julia Gillard, who served as the 27th Prime Minister of Australia, the first woman to serve as Deputy Prime Minister and Prime Minister. While in office, she delivered nation-changing policies in education, sustainability, health care, and in particular mental health. Since leaving politics, Julia's continued to be an active leader in education and healthcare, serving on the boards of Welcome Beyond Blue and Della and other organizations. She's also co-authored a book with Dr. Ngozi Ongojo Ewela, Director General of the World Trade Organization, titled Women in Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons. Julia, welcome to Redefiners. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. So, Julia, you have been super busy since your role as Prime Minister. Before we get to talk about all the amazing things that you are doing, um, I want to actually start on the personal side. So you recently 
somewhat relocated from Australia and now spend part of the time in London. How's that been going? And dare I ask if moving to the UK has brought out that Welsh streak in you? <laughs> well, it certainly hasn't brought out any Welsh accent. I can't <laughs> claim that. Um, I, in the last several years post-politics, have spent at least three months of the year in London uh, because of my role at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, which I founded at King's College London. And then I was asked to chair the Wellcome Trust, which is one of the biggest philanthropic funds in the world, focused on health and medical research. And I said yes to that. And having said yes, in February 2020, note the date, I thought to myself, well, I'll live this life that's sort of half London, half Australia. Of course, the COVID pandemic meant that wasn't possible. Uh, but this, I hope, is the first year where the way I imagined it comes true where I'm in London around half the year, back in Australia for half and regularly going back and forth in between. Um, I feel very at home in both places. Of course, Australia is my genuine home. It's mm -hmm. where my heart is, where my family is. Uh, but I've spent a lot of time in London. I've got great friends here. It's a fabulous city. So it's also wonderful to have my periods of time here. Julia, serving as Prime Minister, okay, you broke records. You became the first female Prime Minister. That was probably not what you thought might happen. But even going into politics was a huge decision. Why did you, why did you even think about going into politics in the first place? Well, it took me quite a long time to make the decision that I did want to go into politics. Uh, when I was Prime Minister and before that Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Education, I would go to a lot of schools and you would often meet a very confident six, seven, eight, nine-year-old who would grandly announce that they were going to be mm. Prime Minister when they grew up. I was actually never that kid. It never, you know, occurred to me that uh, people like me, people from families like mine, which had no connection with politics, um, ended up in the federal parliament or even any of the state parliaments. So what really happened was my pathway was through a cause and the cause was educational opportunity. I came from a family home where neither of my parents had been able to finish secondary school. Uh, they went on to live very long and happy lives, but they were always quite wistful about what could have been if they'd got to finish school. And so drummed into my sister and I was this sense that education was really important. And I took that sense with me to university and thought being at university was a really precious thing. And when I was there, there were some major government cutbacks to education funding. And I thought this was wrong because it would jeopardise, you know, the right of kids like me from families like mine uh, to go on to higher education. And that cause led me into sort of activism, public policy advocacy. It led me into student unionism. And slowly the penny dropped that mm. the best place to make a difference was the parliament. Mm. Well, we're talking about making a difference. Since the global financial crisis, at Russell Reynolds, having looked for great executives, in the last decade, boards have asked us to look deeper into how executives will perform in crises, perform under pressure. That's the world we live in. You, with all due respect, you performed incredibly well in the financial crisis. Two questions. What are your lessons or advice for others as they might go into a crisis as a young leader? And what did you learn about your team's performance in crisis? 
I wish we lived in a world where your clients were saying to you, you know what we need is steady state leaders, you know, nothing's going going on. That would be kind of a nice world for a while, wouldn't it? But it's not our world. I'd have to say with the global financial crisis, look, this was a shared endeavour. You know, the then Prime Minister, Prime Minister Rudd, I as Deputy Prime Minister, and most particularly, I would point to the Treasurer, uh, Wayne Swan. Uh, We had to face this together. And then when I became Prime Minister, we were still dealing with uh, the consequences of the global financial crisis. It was still well and truly with us. And I guess what you learn from that is partly that time spent wargaming for the so-called black swan events, the things that might seem low probability uh, but really should be planned for, that time doing that is never wasted. And so to the extent that in the days and years since I've had the opportunity to sit with boards and say, let's just, you know, shoot the breeze for a while and think about perhaps things that might be quite improbable, but if they happened would be high consequence. I think that's time well spent. I think uh, the time you spend looking inwards to find the resilience for the crisis is also time well spent. Your natural instinct is just, you know, go at it, go at it, go at it, work harder, work harder, work harder. Uh, But you do need some decompression time, some rest and reflection time, because, you know, the crises in our world don't tend to be 24-hour wonders. They're longer lived than that. And you learn something about teamwork. I mean, people really came together and a crisis can actually be a remarkable bonding experience and some of the strongest bonds in my life I forged at that time. Juliet, this year marks the 10-year anniversary of your very powerful misogyny speech to the Australian Parliament. Um, For our listeners who may not know what we're talking about, this was a speech that many have said actually defined your role as a prime minister where you really fought back against the history of gender double standards and sexist behavior. What did that speech mean to you then? Did you know you were going to make it? How did you prepare for it? And then 10 years on, what does it mean to you today? I didn't know I was going to make that speech and I didn't prepare for Did it at not? all, which uh, probably shows, I think, in the delivery. I think much of the power of that speech is that it's so in the moment. Yeah. Um, in Australian politics, we have this ritual every day the parliament meets called Question Time, uh, which is a very rough and tumble affair. Uh, the Prime Minister, all of the ministers have to be in the House and the opposition can ask them any question without notice. And I had got ready for question time and I thought that the theme of the day would be about sexism uh, because a parliamentary officer, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, had been unmasked as having sent some very sexist text messages. So I did get ready for question time, uh, but when I walked into the Parliament, the opposition moved an immediate debate And so what's come to be known as the misogyny speech is my speech in reply. And so I wrote some handwritten notes as the leader of the opposition was giving the opening speech and just gave it. 
And so mm. it was in the moment. But of course, you know, I was a long-standing parliamentarian. I'd spent many years honing my debating skills. It wasn't like it was unusual for me to have to stand in an adversarial environment and hold my ground. At the end of the speech, though, I would have been astonished if anybody had said to me, we'll still be talking about this speech 10 years later. <laughs> I thought, yeah. yeah, I thought it was a powerful speech, but I thought it was, you know, just another parliamentary speech. And it wasn't until the momentum in the public reporting around the world gathered in the days that followed that I realised that for me, this was going to be quite a defining moment as it has turned out. And so what does it mean to you today? How do you think that speech, if at all, changed the course of kind of where you are today? I'd always been an active feminist. You know, from my early days at university, I would have said that I was a feminist and I believe passionately in gender equality. I was of that generation of women in my political party that fought for more women in parliament through an affirmative action rule. Uh, when we were in government, obviously, we were trying to do the right thing on women's equality. Uh, but the speech, I guess, is the moment that that got defined uh, yeah. globally. Um, uh, so my recognition now around those causes, women and leadership, feminism, gender equality, uh, exploded because of that speech. And that's given me all sorts of opportunities I possibly wouldn't have had without it. And that's an example of, I guess, a defining moment that's based on a successful event. Were there any failures in your life, Julia, oh. either <laughs> sort of professional or personal that you think have redefined your career? Oh, absolutely. It took a long time to decide that I did want to go into politics. Uh, but once I decided, I was very determined to get there. And in our political system in Australia, you know, to get there, you need to be pre-selected by a political party. Some people do run as independents, but that's by far the smaller number. And my side of politics was always the Labor side, the equivalent of the Tories in the UK or the Democrats in, in the United States. And I ended up putting myself forward for pre-selection, oh, I can't even remember now, three or four times and getting really? rejected. And then I stood on the Labor Party Senate ticket and I didn't get elected. Uh, so all those early defeats were also defining moments. And what they burned into me, I think, was that I really wanted to do this. This wasn't a flight of fancy or a whimsy. I was all in. And so the defeats really proved that to me. And the fact that I knew that I was so strongly committed to this was very sustaining when I ultimately got there. Julia, just on this theme of women leaders, you co-wrote a book with Dr. Ngozi Ngojo-Wela, who was formerly Nigeria's finance minister and now director general of the World Trade Organization. So women make up less than 10% of national leaders around the world. What made you decide to write the book what can the book do to be helping change the world? Or what do we talk about with you to compel women leaders in government and politics? Really, the book was born out of a shared frustration by Ngozi and I that we weren't seeing enough positive change for women leaders in the world. 
Uh, we'd met briefly when we were both in politics, but we really came to know each other in the years afterwards. I went on to be the chair of a global organisation focused on school education, the Global Partnership for Education. Uh, she was the chair of the Global Vaccine Alliance, and we would end up at all these international meetings together, and we were really drawn to each other and drawn to a continuing conversation about why aren't there more women leaders? Why isn't it going better for women leaders? Then when Hillary lost in the United States, you know, what is going on with that? What role did gender play in her defeat? And the more we war-gamed it, the more agitated we became and the more determined we became to try and make a contribution on getting out there the evidence about women and leadership, the evidence from the research, but also what women who have lived the life say about their own experiences. So we put together a book that tests various research hypotheses against the lived experience of eight women leaders who have been at the top of politics. And we then conclude with some standout lessons because we want more women to go into leadership in all walks of life and we hope the book helps as a bit of a how-to guide, at least a how-to guide on the gendered issues. Fantastic. We've got to get it more well-read. Listeners, this is the book that we have to change the world. Read the book. Now, politics is probably one of the sectors with the biggest gender gap. The latest World Economic Forum gender gap report estimates that it's going to take about 150 years to get gender parity in politics. I'm going to ask you to try and simplify what is probably a really complex situation and tell us if there are one or two key themes that we could be doing now to dramatically reduce that 150 years. Yeah, 150 years is far too long to wait, isn't it? Yeah. That's for sure. Um, I would say that the issues in politics are not unique to politics. Ngozi and I focused on women in politics because the spotlight tends to be the whitest and the hottest. But I think the issues are the same for women who are at the top of business, non-government organisations, civil society, the law, news media, technology, the list goes on. And if I was going to really snapshot those issues, I would say we've got to get away from fixing women, telling women to do things differently and start fixing structures and eradicating stereotypes. You know, all of the big power structures in our societies have developed over time and they've been based on the rhythm of men's lives and we're pretty slow about the task of adapting them to women's lives. And then the research shows very clearly that all of us, because we've grown up in, we live in a gendered environment, all of us have gendered stereotypes in the back of our brain, which mean that we tend yeah. to correlate men and leadership and we don't do the same for women. So we've got to be conscious of that and on the road to eradicating those stereotypes so that they don't bias or distort decisions. Yeah. Do you also think it's a case of women potentially even ruling themselves out, not putting themselves forward? I can't remember what the chapter was, but in Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In book, the chapter that resonated with me most was don't rule yourself out because you think one day you're going to have a baby. Who knows if you will have a baby? Just go for it. And the best bit of advice kind of related to that that I got, Julia, in my very early 20s 
I, I I stood out in every way, right? Gender was actually the least of my problems. And my skin color was slightly different to everyone else's. My name took, you know, a lot longer to spell and for people to understand. Um, and it was one of my first uh, managers uh, when I started work who said, why do you shy away from everything that's different about you? You should actually leverage it and use it to your advantage. And he said, people will remember you because your name is so unusual. If your name was Jane Smith, they actually wouldn't remember you. And to this day, I've really carried that advice that actually what's different about me is good. It's, it's going to help me stand out. The fact that I don't wear, you know, I'm not a man and I don't wear a suit. Does that resonate? Is that something that women can maybe sort of take more to heart? It resonates with me a bit in the sense that Ngozi and I, uh, in the book, we deliberately use the terminology, uh, you go girl, and yeah. we really, really, really want to encourage uh, women and girls to believe in themselves and to put themselves forward for leadership. However, we do take a very different approach to the lean in approach. And mm -hmm. I think that's probably best uh, snapshotted by one piece of research that we cite in the book. Uh, there was a, a research project involving women scientists. So um, at a particular business, the scientific researchers would come together regularly to talk through the really hard problems, you know, the big scientific difficulties that they faced. This was a mixed group, men and women. And what researchers found when they looked at the dynamics of that group was that the women scientists talk less. Yeah. Now, at first blush, you would say, well, that's a confidence problem. If the women scientists were more confident, they would speak more. But when the researchers actually dug the next level down, what they found was the dynamic of the group mm -hmm. was that if a man put forward an idea that was a little bit right and a little bit wrong, and remember they're trying to solve some really hard scientific problems, so understandably ideas are a little bit right and a little bit wrong, but if a man did that, the group dynamic would be to save the bit of the idea that was right, discard the bit that was wrong, and build on yeah. the correct bit. Yeah. If a woman put forward an idea that was a bit right and a bit wrong, the group would dismiss the whole idea. Hmm. Wow. And so the received message for women in that group was, unless you're a million percent sure yeah. that you are completely right, don't say anything. So that's not a lean-in problem. In my view, that's a kind of structures, stereotypes, group dynamic problem. Yeah. And it's those issues that I think we have to solve now. Yeah. And they play out differently in different organisations and contexts, but they play out everywhere. Yeah. So then on that note, are there things that men could be doing? And I, I asked that of you, Julia. I asked that of you, Clark. Are there, are there things that you have done as a man to help drive that gender parity. I agree with what you were saying about get away from fixing women to fix structures and stereotypes. So a number of years ago, in one of my first big leadership roles in this firm, in my male naivete, was trying to figure out how women could make partner on track, could have the children, have the time, be great clients, great humans, and kept trying to figure out this way that I was going to fix this. And a woman partner who I sought advice in Chicago said to me, stop it. Why are you putting the man's version of fixing the world when you can't? The world is not perfect. So actually switch and think of it from her perspective 
that not everything is going to be perfect. And there's a moment in her career where she needs flexibility. There's a moment in her career she's going to accelerate. And there's a moment in her career where other things happen. So stop trying to fix it from your standpoint, naively, and understand from their standpoint, what do they need when, and you will retain the best women potential leaders in the firm. And I, I, I was the stereotype trying to do it from my standpoint. And uh, boy, huge, uh, embarrassing and, and, and helpful eye-opener for me. Clark, I would still much rather <laughs> a man who's enthusiastic and trying to get involved in change, even with a bit of an error rate, um, than, than someone who's not enthusiastic. And I do think many men think this is not my problem, yeah. you know, mm. and they might think that in uh, an aggressive kind of way, you know, not my problem. Um, but they might also think it in a good-hearted kind of way, which is, you know, like it's not for me, the women need to be in the lead here, so I shouldn't sort of be in amongst it, I should be letting the women do it. And I do think that we need collaboration and allyship between women and men. So, yes, women have to be the ones that are consulted, you know, at the forefront of this wave of change. But, you know, if we look at any domain, politics, business, what have you, mostly at the moment the levers of power are in the hands of men and if men aren't going to use those levers for power for change then that world economic forum prediction about you know waiting for forever uh, to get to gender equality will come true yeah. so i do think it's really important that men uh, get involved in this and are prepared to have the kinds of conversations you ultimately had about how can we best do this together and I think one of my lessons learned from one of the senior women in, at Russell Reynolds was as we were going through decisions about who wanted what role and where they might go next is, again, with a man's perspective, obviously, is I make assumptions about what people want and, and men tend to roll forward. And she said to me, you know, you've never asked me what I want, when and how. And you need to learn to ask the women in particular to open the conversation because you make assumptions men keep plowing ahead. So lean in, Clark. That's my redefining moment about uh, men leaning in, I must, I must say. Um, Julia, a different tack now. Since leaving politics, you've been very purposeful about what you've chosen to do and what to get involved in, which is a plethora of activities. Is there a thread to what you wanted to do next and get involved in, or has it happened? How have you thought about your portfolio career, as we say it right now? There is a central thread, which is when I came out of politics, I did sit and think for quite a long period of time about the life that I'd lived up until that date and what aspects of it I wanted to take with me and what I wanted to discard. And so of the early things that I took, uh, I took chairing the Global Partnership for Education and becoming patron of the campaign for female education uh, because education had been the sort of golden thread for me that got me into politics. I took the opportunity to chair Beyond Blue, which is Australia's major mental health advocacy uh, organisation. And I was also drawn to this area of women's leadership because of the experiences that I'd had in politics. And that led me to found the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. 
Uh, ultimately, I've built on that with the Wellcome Trust, uh, which, you know, very much resonates with me and my belief that the best of public policy should be driven by evidence and that science plays such an important role in generating that evidence. And, and some of these themes you talk about in science, boards are increasingly asking us over the last three years to uh, assess sustainable competencies in leadership, to help them pick leaders with sustainable competencies and track records. Your thoughts on sustainability, the SDGs involve some of what you're talking about, but how do you think about being a sustainable leader given you're so well regarded and you're in a number of platforms now? This is the kind of area where we're all still learning by doing. And so I think good leadership is um, partly track record, but it's really partly demeanour, mindset, agility, flexibility, the preparedness to keep learning. I think they're the really valuable traits in that sense. And I think that they're the really valuable traits in sustainability in the personally sustainable sense, you mm -hmm. know, are you the kind of leader that can get up and do it again and get up and do it again and get up and do it again? And the people who can uh, keep that work intensity but keep it fresh are the people who do embrace this agility and learning, reflection uh, sort of way of working rather than having very rigid pathways about how they see their leadership. We'll be right back with Julia, but first we're going to take a quick break with Claudia Gonzalez, an executive director with Russell Reynolds Associates in our Mexico City office. Claudia is going to talk about why it's so critical we close the gender gap in the C-suite. The facts don't lie. Women represent about 47% of the U.S. workforce and 41% of the global workforce. Women represent only about a quarter of all senior executives at U.S. public companies. That figure drops to only about 5% of the CEOs at Fortune 500 companies. We can and should do better when it comes to advancing women into executive and board roles. Why? Because we need to do more to achieve gender parity at all levels of an organization, which is just good for business. Diversity makes a company stronger. Stockholder value, productivity, and profits all increase. So what can you do to increase the number of women serving in the C-suite and on boards? It's time to get proactive with a few decisive actions. Establish clear governance goals to have women represent 50% of board seats. Create mentoring programs for female leaders and make it a priority for talent managers to invest in their development. State your objective of developing more executive-level female managers, both internally and externally, to hold the senior management and the board accountable. It's clear we have a wide gender gap to close. But by making this a business priority, and taking some proactive steps, we can start to level the playing field for everyone and improve our businesses at the same time. To learn more about how you can build a more equitable and diverse workplace, go to www.russellreynolds.com insights. And now back to our conversation with Julia. Julia, I'd like to talk a little bit about Welcome Leap which um, you obviously know well what it is again for our listeners. It's funded by the Wellcome Trust and it's designed to take a moonshots approach to try and deliver breakthroughs in human health over what 
is seemingly a short time frame, sort of five to 10 years. How do you look at risk-taking when it comes to solving some of the world's most challenging problems? Yeah, the perspective we take at Welcome is that we need to fund science uh, from the most curiosity-based scientist-driven approaches. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the biggest healthcare developments in human history have started because the scientist has said, oh, that's kind of interesting. Don't kind of know what it means or where it could lead, but it's curious and I'm going to follow that up. Yeah. And so we do fund that kind of science, what we call discovery science. We also fund the science where the nature of the challenge is uh, clear and we think global, so infectious diseases, obviously, uh, mental health and increasingly the intersection of climate and health. And we do take different methodologies and Welcome Leap is a different methodology. It's a hot housing moonshot methodology uh, where we back uh, great ideas and then really try and turbocharge the rate of change. You know, no one risk profile is right. No one approach is right. But we think if we can have many of these approaches, then they'll pay different sorts of dividends. Yeah. And Welcome Leap is very good at spotting uh, potential uh, moonshots. Not all of them are going to come in kind of by definition. Uh, but in that field, we've got a pretty high appetite for risk. Um, a last question, Julia, and it cuts across your political career, which was probably the more of a spotlight on dealing with adversaries, negativity, attacks, to business confidence for men and women to handle uncertainty or, or at worst, adversity. What's your advice for listeners about growing confidence and strength in moments of adversity? How do you reflect on those moments that made you a better leader? Uh, when I became Prime Minister, a friend of mine said to me, you need to take the time to write down uh, what it is that is the purpose of the government you lead. You know, what's it all for? What's it about? And I did do that. It was hard to wrestle the time to do it. I And I thought, you know, in my head that I knew that, but there's something very clarifying about putting it down on a sheet of paper. And once I had done that, I kept that sheet of paper with me and reread that sense of purpose about the government I led on the worst days in the most flustered of moments. And it really helped steady me. And I think clarity about purpose is the thing that can help you be far more resilient in the moment uh, compared with almost anything else. And I love that. Love that. Absolutely. Julia, we end each podcast with some rapid fire questions. So this is where we're going to ask you five questions and we ask you to reply as quickly as possible. Are you ready? I'll do my best. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, let's get started. So which current or historical leader do you admire the most? Oh, I'm certainly of the Nelson Mandela generation, so I'd say Mandela. Very good answer. What's your favorite way to decompress after a long day? I like to read and I sometimes do jigsaws as well. Third question, what would you consider the best habit of leadership? Inclusion, being open to new ideas and new people. 
Who was your mentor that had the biggest impact on you and why? Joan Kerner, who was the first woman to serve as Premier of Victoria in Australia. She taught me a lot about what it's like to be the first woman. And the last question, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? <laughs> it would still be uh, do it, absolutely, go for it. Uh, but I guess I would say stop making the happy assumption that by the time you're in middle age, all gender equality issues will be fixed, <laughs> which is what I did think when I was 18. <laughs> well, there you go. And some lessons learned. Um, thank you for the time today. Amazing and wide-ranging. Just some, some, some reflections uh, at the close. Thinking about leaders in crisis, taking time for the wargaming is never wasted time. The improbable does happen, and we in the last 10 years, once after another, have found that. But in crisis, look inwards for resilience. You need reflection time to sustain the energy for the length of a crisis. So don't be afraid to take the pause in the heat of difficult times. And that teams are what fundamentally make it through crises, not sole leadership. And they can become bonding experiences for the future in how they respond better and better and better. I love this idea that the spontaneous, that misogyny speech, which I would have assumed was perfectly curated in advance, the spontaneous opens new paths. And so don't overscript one's life. You have to stand your ground in adversarial moments, but let spontaneity guide to what can really happen. Your reflections on failure to give you more determination rather than knock you down, that your defeats powered you strongly, you said. And I think so many of us worry about getting beaten by defeat that we look weaker. In fact, it gave you greater strength to be who you wanted to be. As we talk about progress for women in any aspect of the modern world, that again, well said, get away from fixing women to the structures and stereotypes of men. From sustainability, you look at it both as a leadership and a personal sustainability, that driving change is a hallmark of a good leader, but the agility to keep learning, which of course is music to our ears, but the, the agility makes great sustainable leaders in terms of climate change and development goals. But personal sustainability is about making sure you keep it fresh, that you sustain intensity as a leader over the long term. And finally, in times of adversity, clarify your purpose, stick to it. It will sustain you when times are tough. Don't forget why you wanted to be who you want to be. Julia, you know, no surprises, a fascinating set of discussions. And thank you for taking the time in a tough week for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Julia, for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com, find us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.